Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. I will be your host today. I'm Timothy Muirhead. You can follow our podcast via Twitter at the Tonebenders. Our guest today needs no introduction. It's Paul Davies. He's joining me from London, England. Paul is a sound designer and supervising sound editor with a long and impressive list of credits. He might be best known for his longtime collaboration with director Lynn Ramsey, having created the tracks for Ratcatcher, Morvan Caller, We Need to Talk About Kevin, and the latest film, You Were Never Really Here, which really threw me for a loop. That is a really interesting movie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, other credits include Steve McQueen's Hunger, John Mayberry's Love is the Devil, and Stephen Frears' The Queen and the recent A Private War, which we actually just talked to Andrew Sterk about in uh, episode 91. Paul is also one of the guest speakers at the upcoming School of Sound Symposium in London from April 24th to 27th. You can find out more about the School of Sound at schoolofsound.co.uk. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for asking me, Tim. You may disagree with this, but I feel like one of the things that you're really good at is creating a mood for a film. Uh, there are guys out there who can make uh, amazing robot sounds and amazing uh, battles that, with explosions, and I'm sure you're very good at all of that too, but what I feel like you excel at is just creating a mood for a film. I'm a really big fan of the way you can create a whole soundtrack that can keep me on my toes in a way that I feel like is not just inserting slot A into tab B. You're, you're coming up with sounds that make me uh, uncomfortable a lot of the time, and I thank you for that. Well, good. Well, thank you, and I'm glad you have been uncomfortable <laughs> watching my films, Tim. I think I'd, I'd agree with absolutely what you just said. It seems to be, and I'm just going back, feedback of directors and the filmmakers I've worked with, this is when they seek me out. This is what, generally when they seek me out. I've done my share of uh, genre films and spaceship films and uh, magical kids' films, but um, I think that, yes, what I'm known for consistently time and time and again is setting this mood with an atmosphere and perhaps getting inside the head of the characters as well within the world the sound world of the film well put yes so i, I yes that's, that's thank you i'm glad you uh, <laughs> you also see that as well well it's that's not an easy thing to do it's something that you also attack in different ways from film to film. For instance, I mentioned in the intro that I recently watched You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. And that film, there are a lot of different ways that you're keeping me on my toes in terms of drastic volume shifts. Yes. And then also uh, unexpected ambiences, I guess. Yes. How much time do you get to experiment on a film like that to come up with how you're going to tackle these issues? Well, that film was a sort of an ideal scenario in many ways. That's the fifth collaboration, fourth feature film with Lynn over a 20-year period. We know each other very well by now, obviously, and having been through various stages of her filmmaking career and my, I mean, my own career. We, I was on the film for uh, a, a considerable amount of time. On the last day of the final mix after the review, I looked at the first data, the, my first, very first session for the film, that was 12 months previously. But I hadn't been working for 12 months consistently, I must emphasise, I've been working on other things, but I, I had been sending material during the picture edit with Joe Beanie and Lynn, were working first in LA, then came to London and worked in London. I did see various cuts of the film, was sent various cuts of the film. I'd read the script before, I'd read the source material, I'd talked to Lynn beforehand. We didn't quite have as much pre-production as we'd like because she was rushed into pre-production because of um, Whacking Phoenix suddenly became available. And so the whole thing was put into um, production a little earlier than she anticipated or would have wished for, but that was the nature of it. So suddenly the film got greenlit maybe a few months before 
she actually expected it to have been. So we didn't have quite those conversations we're expecting to have. But nonetheless, we were able to um, work together alongside each other quite a period of time. And I think that's must be said that her collaborators, which include Joe and Johnny Greenwood and uh, Graham Stewart, are all very important figures in sort of constructing the soundtrack with an input of the soundtrack and the collaboration between all of us. And Joe's got a very, Joe Beanie, the editor, has got a very keen ear for sound as well. So by the time we got to the stage where Unexpectedly got into Cannes Film Festival, because I think, again, we weren't anticipating to be ready for Cannes, all the preparation work came to a good stead because we suddenly had to sort of almost do what I'd call an enhanced temp dub. We wanted to have a mix of the film, which the audience would see as a complete film even though we came back afterwards and did another version and built on what we'd achieved in Cannes. But I think it played like that in Cannes, but we were only able to achieve that because I think a lot of the groundwork and the conceptual work had been done during that picture editing process. Yeah, I noticed in the credits for the film, there's two separate mix teams yes. credited, a Cannes mix team and then the final mix team. Absolutely, yes. There was a, an eight or nine day mix for Cannes, so it's more than you usually get for the three or four days for a tent dub. So it was actually a complete mix, but not quite what you would get for a, a full feature mix. Then we came back and did another mix again with Andrew Sturk. I mean, this was a question, the two different mix teams are a question that was of, of availability, not uh, we chose one mix team over another. It's because uh, it was, um, our dates were constantly shifting, schedules and people became available or not available. So both, did a, both teams did an excellent, excellent job. So when you first worked with Lynn Ramsey, I think you mentioned 20 years ago, what happened in that relationship that made her keep coming back? People always ask, they know we're both graduates, uh, alumni of the National Film and Television School in, here in the UK. We were sort of different generations or different uh, years of that school, and I'm a bit older, and I was a bit before Lynn. And I knew her very slightly in film school, a little bit in film school, and I didn't work in any of the shorts she made subsequent to leaving the film school, graduating from film school. But I was brought on board Ratcatcher because I knew Richard Flynn, I knew Lucia Zucchetti, the editor, and they asked me to become involved, and that's the first time we worked together. And it was a very quick, sound editorial process. It wasn't the 12 months period we had for you never hear. As I recall, I think it was a four-week sound effects edit. It was more like a, what you'd get for a, a TV movie. Fortunately, I mean, they were... A, Editing. I was working for a company at that time. I wasn't freelance, and they were Lucia and Lynn were editing in the same building. So I saw lots of different versions of the Kurtz. Uh, we talked a lot, and then by the so that by the time it came to the actual physical sound editing process, we were able to work very efficiently. But I think we found we worked very well together. And Lynn, I think for the first time, was able to truly explore sound post production, what she could do with it in her, in her films she suddenly saw there was another canvas she could explore. And then we worked together through more than color. And then there was various projects that didn't come to fruition. Then Kevin, and, uh, you know, and then uh, you never really hear. So I think the relationship built up naturally. And then it was now, you know, a, a friendship. And uh, obviously, as well as a professional relationship. So you're speaking at the School of Sound this year. Is this, this is not the first time you've spoken at it, is it? Yes, I spoke with Lynn. Uh, we, Lynn and I did a joint session, I think, back in 2005. So I think the only body of work we'd obviously had was, uh, at that time, was Ratcatcher and Morven Caller. And we looked at one of the shorts as well. I think we looked at an extract from Gas Man. And we looked at some of Lynn's key influences, Mayor Darren, I think, remember being particularly one of them, and Bresson. So I'm in North America. I became aware of the School of Sound through the book, Soundscapes. That's correct. That's right, yes. Back in maybe 
mid 2000s, I came across that book and was like, oh my God, I had no idea that this symposium was happening. How did you first come across it? I became naturally aware through my connections to the film school, I think maybe doing some workshops there, that Larry was organising this entity called School of Sound. Because there's various other schools of sound besides the biennial one in central London. There's other, other ventures or the workshops which Larry holds throughout the year in different countries. And I think I did a School of Sound presentation for him in Dundee. I remember being terribly nervous and very ill-prepared, and that taught me a big lesson. <laughs> I thought you could come in and busk it, as it were, and I've learned that you, you couldn't. So by the time Lynn, I came to do the workshop, with the session with Lynn, I, I, we were much better prepared and rehearsed. So you've got a couple months to prepare for this year, but do you know what your talk is going to be about this year? I think probably what we touched on before, and I think you know one's tempted to sort of think that you see all these other eminent uh, contributors uh, invited and you think that you have to be as uh, you know as well researched or talk about film history as they are and so I think perhaps what I'll talk about is more the idea of subjective sound and perhaps what we spoke about earlier what I'm known for is how do you get inside the head of a character for example what's interesting about you and never really here is where I regard it is the entire film soundtrack is from Wacking's point of view the idea of first person in a film is an interesting one, which is a narrative where you can describe what's going on in the character's head in a story. In film, you know, what do you traditionally do to get inside the character's head? Do you put a voiceover or you put some music on? How do you explore that? How do you get inside the head of a character? You have to understand the story, you have to understand the character's motivation. What are they hearing? The key phrase from Lynn, and I think she's said, stated this in several interviews herself, Joaquin's character, Joe, is a, is a man with a head full of broken glass. He's walking around New York with a head full of broken glass. So not literally, we're not hearing broken <laughs> glass, but that gives you the image, the sound image. The world of the mother's house is more akin to the sound world which we, Lynn and I might have explored in Rat Catcher or perhaps the te- techniques we used in Hunger, which is very stripped back. We don't hear, we hear hardly any exterior sound, a little wind through a window, something like that. I need my space. Your what? My space. All right, go get your space downstairs. Oh, no. Are you sure you need downstairs, all right? What? Yeah. Yes, I do. Deliberately silent, room tones, enhanced foley. We hear the dialogue. Step outside the neighbourhood. He comes out of his house, he hears the dog barking. Some distant birds and wind. Then into New York. New York is hyper-realised uh, or stylized. It's overwhelming. We had, I remember having several discussions on the dub stage where other voices, producers, going, listen, this is too much. Well, it is too much. I mean, it's more than if you were <laughs> in a conventional movie, character walks from out of house, down his street and out into New York City. Well, we may get a bit louder. We don't sort of hit the audience full on with a f- world of screaming overhead trains and overwhelming traffic. I think the big thing for me... What is the central idea of this film? What is the idea of the character? And for me, it's dislocation. The character is separated from his world. He's not in, comfortable in the environment. It's, he's alienated from the environment. The only safe place of any measure, but of course there's terrible memories within that safe place, is his mother's house and his relationship with his mother. The outside world is this overwhelming 
threatening world. Even the birds, when he steps into the lake, to put, you know, spoiler alert, with his mother's body, is the birds are hyper-real, the crickets are hyper-real, the traffic's hyper-real, everything, the train sounds. During the period when I think Lynn was shooting, I happened to see an exhibition at the Tate uh, Modern Gallery here in London, and it was an American um, video artist, uh, Charles Atlas. It was a work of several TV monitors showing images of uh, Merce Cunningham, the famous choreographer, and then in front of these several monitors, there were four speakers, and each speaker was playing back traffic sound or interior traffic sound, but each speaker was different. They were in a straight line, so it wasn't sort of surround sound. It was, But yeah. all the sounds were of the same family. I think the sound was actually put together, a composition piece was by John Cage, who's Merce Cunningham's creative and life partner. It was very interesting. The effect on the monitors was quite peaceful, was quite, wasn't alienating, but I thought, this is an idea. What if... Within our New York, each speaker is playing a different traffic sound. So what you're hearing, actually, when, that, when he steps out into, into the underpass in New York is we hear a 5.0 surround normal traffic, but underneath that, there's, this is what I call the special five zeros, which happen throughout the film, where each leg is different, but of the same family, but maybe a completely different file. And actually, I think one leg is even running backwards. <laughs> wow. And what this, but what this creates is, you're not aware of that as an audience member or even as a sound professional, but what it creates is people have constantly said, why do I feel uncomfortable? That's why you feel uncomfortable, because a sound feels like it's being, your head's being pulled apart somehow. That's really what, it was an understanding of what that character was. And then that allowed a sound concept. And I remember speaking to Lynn about all this, and she said, yes, great, go for it. When I started putting different legs in the sort of surround sound, I felt I was breaking some sort of uh, <laughs> unwritten rule, and I felt I was... Uh... Well, you were. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was. But it worked. It worked, yes. And I think even the train sound at the beginning, which was, I th as I think I'm right, I don't think the train the start of the train over the, over the production company logos at the, right at the front of the film, that wasn't in the can mix, but that, a lot of the sound came for that. There was a key sequence, there's a key sequence in the film where Joe, the Joaquin Phoenix character, is on the train. It's quite a long sequence, and there's various flashbacks happening during that sequence where Joe pieces together this, what's happened. And the train's journey of Joe just is, is from two 11-minute takes of Joe of Joaquin sitting in a, on a train, just looking out the window, just doing his stuff. There's two continuous 11-minute takes. And from that, within each take, there's a certain point where the train must have passed over something on the rails when it produces this quite interesting harmonic, this ooh sound, forgive my uh, bad pitching and <laughs> singing, but it's sort of singing harmonic sound, which is in the, in the sync sound, which was recorded by Drew Cunin. And then, well, Lynn said, that sound, that's an interesting sound. I like that used as sort of like a iconic or uh, a recurring motif throughout the film. And so I isolated that sound. And I first, I remember, started playing around with uh, isotope iris synthesizer and painting things out. And I thought, what am I doing here? Nothing against isotope. I thought, what I need is a bandpass, resonant bandpass filter. <laughs> so I just used an old-fashioned technique of that. And then I, I think I stretched it as well with Paul stretch so I could lengthen the sound. And then that sound is used in the train sound at the beginning, but it reoccurs several times in the film. Uh, 
a reaction to that sound off the top of the film. For anyone who hasn't seen the film yet, uh, as the logos of the various movie studios come up off the beginning, you're hearing this uh, kind of droney sound. And uh, w 30 seconds into it, my wife, who was watching it with me, just turned to me and said, what kind of movie is this? Like, what are we getting ourselves into? Like, she, it really put her on edge, like right from the start before we'd even seen a frame of the actual film. She was already like, what am I getting into here? So it, I don't know that I've ever heard a sound off the top of a movie, like immediately make someone realize they're going down a rabbit hole. And so it was really effective. Yes, I mean, I think that was a decision. I, I, and I did come to that post, having had the uh, advantage of watching with an audience it can and going down very well thinking you know what we need to do <laughs> we need to stick the train and the big train sort of montage sequence at the beginning of the film i mean there's nothing very it's mostly sort of mixing and um layering there's nothing very fancy or funky going on with the plugins for most of this film yeah i mean i'm using there's a off-the-shelf uh, phaser, which I chose because it sounded to me like a 70s analog phaser. I love that. <laughs> so it's, it reminded me of the sound a little bit that uh, that David Bowie achieved on Station to Station, the song. That oh, there you go, yeah. Also, um, Kraftwerk on Trans Europe Express. When I said to the mixer, Andrew Sturk, I said, I think we've just mixed uh, Trans Europe Express, remixed it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it does set it up. In a way, that was sort of, we'd already established that precedent and you, we need to talk about Kevin with the famous, uh, which is now famous, uh, sprinkler sound, which we hear the sound of the sprinkler and we hear the, see the billowing curtains. It's a sound and a shot which only resolves itself mm -hmm. basically four-fifths of the way into the movie where we realise the significance of this sprinkler and why is it, and this billowing curtain, why is it so ominous? Well, all right, it is ominous because of, but it sets it up in the audience's mind. Mm -hmm. And we did this a little bit in more than colour, and I think this is the first time I realised that if you set up with the flickering lights, when you see the dead body of the boyfriend, with the flickering lights, the Christmas tree and the, and the hum of the computer, and with no music, you force the audience to listen. The audience is then listening, and then we'll listen to the rest of the film. But that's why also what we're saying is we're setting up the movie, we're also saying sound is important within this story. For sure. So speaking of pop stars with David Bowings, the composer for You Are Never Really Here was Johnny Greenwood. Yes. Who uh, we all got to know as the guitarist from Radiohead. Yes. But has now more than set himself apart as a top-notch composer. Absolutely, yes. Seems like he's doing some of the work of sound effects sometimes, and you're doing some of the work of music sometimes. Yes, I think that uh, I work more closely with... Um with Johnny's uh, key collaborator, which is Graeme Stewart, who's Johnny's producer, engineer, and music editor. Both Graeme and myself went through the film and constructed a roadmap about what sounds and what music cues we would hear where. That was obviously based on part of what had already been established with Joe and Lynn's work within the cutting copy as well. It was, I suppose, an evolutionary process, an organic process, working with Eitner. Um, so I worked with Graeme, particularly more closely on this film, on... Uh, we spoke Kevin. It was a, it was a sort of the relationship was just beginning then, but I think it was actually a particularly close collaboration. Graham could go away and sort of work with Johnny's cues and sort of was aware of what I was doing, and then I was aware of what they were doing. So I think it's well before Can we were aware of what each other was was doing within the tracks. Was there a lot of back and forth? Did you do revisions based on the music? Did they do revisions of the music based on the sound effects? Yes, I think it was back and forth. And I think it was back and forth, particularly the Cannes uh, version. We, we, we all rushed into, um, again, rushed into sort of sound editorial and music before 
we'd expect it to be. And there's, so there was very little time to reflect. But post can there was plenty of time to reflect. And then we, I remember having a conference with uh, Joe, Lynn, myself and Graham and uh, Linda Forson, the Dahl, talking about the path forward and what we thought was successful in the can version, what, what we could build on. And so, yes, there was a lot of back and forth at that point. And I think that's probably post-CAN we constructed a roadmap about the way ahead. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. I'm really glad that I got to talk to you because, as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of your work. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it to the School of Sound this year. Uh, Unfortunately, it's across an ocean for me. But uh, I look forward to hearing uh, feedback from those that do on your talk, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. Okay, brilliant. All right, Tim. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.